You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. And this is the story of Celine Cawley. Celine Cawley was born in June of 1962. She and her two sisters and one brother grew up in North County Dublin, near the seaside in Port Marnock. The family were wealthy. Her father was a solicitor and was well-connected politically, as well as with media types. Celine was a confident child and very likeable. She liked horse riding and yachting. She went to the local Pubblescolisa in Malahide for a few years before completing secondary school as a boarder at Claremont Convent Girls' School, south of Dublin in Rathnew, County Wicklow. She often spent her summers in the southwest of France at her aunt's home, where she would spend time with her cousins. After school, she studied at UCD and began working as a receptionist at her father's law firm during the summers. It was there she was first approached by a photographer, and she quickly fell into a career of modelling. Soon she began taking jobs outside of Ireland. She travelled through Europe and eventually settled in New York to pursue her career. She signed with the prestigious Elite Model Agency. The modelling didn't really change her, though. She would turn up at shoots, makeup-free, hair pulled back and wearing relaxed t-shirts and jeans. She did shoots for Vogue and Elle and hung around with celebrities who, for the most part, enjoyed her forthright manner. After a while, she relocated to Paris and even landed a non-speaking part in a James Bond film as one of the beautiful women he encountered. But soon, the shine of a jet-set lifestyle wore thin. Celine wanted more and something different, and so she decided to start over and work her way from the bottom up in the film industry. She moved back to Dublin and took up a job working reception in the famous Windmill Lane Studios. Soon she was taken under the wing of a successful producer who took her on as a personal assistant. After proving herself there, she moved into production and over to London. She was a good businesswoman and negotiator. She got things in on budget and on time, and had a real head for the work that went into making the ads that we saw on television and in the cinemas. In September of 1990, while attending an advertising festival in County Kerry, Celine's boss introduced her to Eamon Lillis. He worked freelance in advertising and, like Celine, was from Dublin. He and his two sisters had grown up in Leafy Terrenure, on the south side of Dublin City, their father had been in the army before moving into the private sector. Lillis was noted as being a bit of a dreamer and an introvert. He wanted to be a writer and studied English in UCD before making his way into advertising. The two bonded over their love of dogs. Eamon had recently got a German shepherd puppy, 
and Celine had a Rhodesian Ridgeback Alsatian cross. But quickly the chats went beyond dogs, and the two started seeing each other. Their relationship was like chalk and cheese, with Eamon quiet and a bit of a dreamer, while Celine was bubbly and ambitious. But their differences complemented each other, and frankly, Eamon was happy to let Celine make the decisions. And things moved quickly. They were engaged by December of that year, and married in July of 1991. They bought a house in Sandymount together, and soon started their family. They had a baby girl, who would be their only child. Soon after, though, GPA, the company that Celine worked for, closed down. As was her nature, rather than see this as a stumbling block, she used it as an opportunity to start her own company, Toytown Films. Soon the company had grown from one based out of their home to one based out of her old haunt in Windmill Lane Studios and was one of the leading producers of advertising in the country. She worked with brands like Guinness, Volvo and Cadbury. Initially, Eamon had decided to stick with his own freelancing, but as that became more haphazard over the next few years, he eventually joined Celine's team at Toytown. In the wake of Celine's success, they moved into a beautiful detached property on the affluent hill of Hoth, overlooking Dublin Bay. She was a perfectionist and a hard taskmaster for her boss. Her high expectations for herself were also in place for those who worked for her, including Eamon. She could be blunt and had very specific ideas about how things should be, but she was good at what she did. And though sometimes the way she spoke to Eamon, or received his ideas, seemed harsh, their home life was happy. They presented a united front there, and loved socialising and throwing parties at their house. The morning of the 15th of December 2008 started out as usual for the family who lived in Rowan Hill, a modern luxury home on Hoth's Windgate Road. The home nestled into the landscape of the hill around it, like many of the other homes in the area. It disappeared behind its gates and decorative hedging and security fencing. This one had its plaster painted a pale cream, with the second story of the building, which housed the master bedroom and ensuite, being clad in wood. There was a large deck to the back, taking up only a small portion of the acre of land that the house sits on. Eamon Lillis was first up as usual that morning. He did some exercises and came downstairs from the master bedroom to make tea for himself his wife, and his daughter before their days began. He and Celine hadn't shared a room in a long time, first because their schedules differed so much, but now it was more of an established routine of theirs. They'd been married for 17 years, and, well, things had been better. He let out the family's three dogs, and then he handed the tea into his daughter and made sure she was up for school, and carried on down the hallway to the downstairs bedroom Celine used. She was watching TV, and he stood there for a few minutes watching too, before heading back up to the master bedroom to dress. He put on jeans, a polo shirt, and a black jumper, pulled on some runners and one of his expensive watches, and then brought his daughter to school. The lift there took minutes, and he joked with a friend of his who was now vice-principal at the local school. Then he went to pick up his daily paper, the Irish Times, at about half eight, 
and went home to walk the dogs. The distance that they would walk would be limited by their old Newfoundland, Molly, who was getting a bit arthritic. But the walks were definitely needed by the two younger dogs, Sam the Rhodesian Ridgeback and Harry the Cocker Spaniel. By the time he got back to the house, it was half past nine. He had very little on his agenda to do that day, though. He and Celine had a meeting with their pensioner trustee that afternoon, and he needed to get a new set of Christmas lights for the tree, but that was it. But the next anyone heard from Rowan Hill was a frantic call to 999 at 10.04am. Eamon rang and between gulps of air and panicked crying, he told the operator that he'd just arrived home to find his wife had been attacked, and then he'd been attacked himself. The three dogs were going mad barking in the background of the call. The emergency service operator talked Eamon through administering CPR to his wife, who he said was unresponsive and possibly not breathing as she lay on the deck at the back of the house. She was bleeding from her head, and he'd been scratched and hit too. Within minutes, the ambulance and guardie had arrived. Celine was whisked off to hospital, but by that stage, she had lost too much blood, and was pronounced dead shortly after 11am. When Gardie had arrived at the house, they had to climb the fence to gain access. By that time, Eamon was making very little sense. He was in a complete panic, utterly distraught, and obviously suffering from shock. He managed to get out that there had been a man. When he got back from walking the dog, Celine was lying on the deck and this man stood over her, holding a brick. That's when the intruder had gone after him and he'd got his injuries. The man was about Eamon's height, but wiry and strong. He'd been wearing jeans, a dark jacket and gloves, and some sort of ski mask covering his face. He'd had a large rucksack on his back, too. Paramedics from a second ambulance tended to a lump forming over one of Eamon's eyes and three large scratches he'd sustained across a cheek before he was brought to Hoth Garda Station. There he went over the events of the morning, the school run, the dog walking, and then coming home and seeing Celine lying on the decking with the man standing over her. He gave the guardie the description of the man, and then allowed the guardie to take the clothes he was wearing for examination. Combats, a t-shirt and a jumper, his watch. He was examined by a doctor, who he told he'd been hit in the head by a brick. Swabs were taken, as well as photographs of Lillis's injuries. At half eleven, Eamon rang his wife's company, to let them know what had happened and that Celine would obviously not be in that day but he reassured the colleague that answered that someone at the scene had said Celine would be okay. He didn't know yet that his wife had been pronounced dead around that same time across the city in Beaumont Hospital. At half three, Eamon was brought into an interview room to make a formal statement. He went through all the events of the morning once more, adding details where he could. The attacker had held the brick in his right hand, He'd run off after hitting Eamon, presumably to jump the fence into the neighbor's garden. The fence had been installed after their last break-in a few years before. He told the guardie that the couple had had their suspicions about that incident, and that Celine had gotten a text saying that the guy that they thought had something to do with that break-in was back in the area. But he said 
there'd been nothing out of the ordinary in the days or weeks before this. They'd seen no one strange, had no strange calls. Nothing. Eamon told police that he and Celine usually headed into work between half nine and ten, but that day they'd been free until their financial meeting that afternoon at two. Work was quiet in the run-up to Christmas. He also told Gardy that his wife probably would have confronted someone if she found them on her property. She was tough and commanding and wouldn't have been the kind of person to back down or run off in the face of a trespasser. He said that the family's three dogs had been barking, but told the Gardy that they weren't guard dogs. When asked, he said he wasn't surprised that none of them went after the intruder or gave chase. After the statement, Eamon was joined by Celine's father, John, a now retired solicitor, before everyone converged on Celine's brother's house, a short distance from their own home. The man that Lillis had been suspicious of, and implicated in the previous burglary in the house, was questioned that evening. His name was Stephen Larkin. He was a landscape gardener who had worked for the family years before, but he denied any involvement in what had happened in Hoth that morning. The following morning, Lillis rang police in Hoth Station to tell them a few things he'd since remembered that he wanted included in the statement he had made the previous day. He told Gardy now that he thought he'd passed out, or fell unconscious, as the attacker began his escape from the property. He said he'd no idea how long he'd been out. The last thing he saw was the man turning to leave. When he woke up, he was gone. Eamon said that he'd then run halfway down the garden, looking for any sign of the attacker, but there was nothing, and so at that point he went back to Celine, who was lying on the deck. He said now he couldn't remember if she was breathing, but she may have opened her eyes. In the aftermath of Celine Cawley's death, the search and investigations carried on out in her Hoth home over a number of days. Initially, a helicopter was dispatched to look for the man that Eamon had described, and footage from any CCTV cameras from the surrounding areas were gathered. Gardy also conducted a thorough fingertip search of the garden, from the deck near to the covered hot tub, down the lawn to the stables, and began a room-by-room search of the spacious house for evidence. They located a blood-soaked brick, that matched other cobble-lock bricks from the decking area. There was blood on the decking, not only in a pool where Celine had lain, but also in another area, covered in fine blood spatter, as if from an impact. There was more on the sliding glass doors leading to the kitchen. There were droplets of both Celine Colley's and Eamon Lillis's blood on the step into the kitchen. There was a large smear on the outer wall of the house, alongside the decking, which looked as if it had been made by someone's head being dragged along it. The wire fencing around the house that Eamon had presumed the attacker had fled and jumped over was also closely searched. There was no sign of disturbance, no fibres, hair or blood left behind on any part of the fencing. There was blood found in the sink of the ensuite bathroom in the master bedroom of the house. Next to the bed was a watch that had smears of blood and toilet tissue stuck to it, as if it had been wiped clean. There was a pair of runner boots, neatly placed in the wardrobe, which also had droplets of blood on them, 
and more substantial staining to their souls. There was a mobile phone found on the bedside table, which appeared to have communications exclusively from one other phone. A number of text messages had been sent that very morning, growing increasingly worried in tone as no response was received back. Quote, Everything okay, babe? Kiss. Getting a bit worried now, babe. Kiss. A final text came in the evening of Celine's death, hours after the guardie had collected the phone as evidence, which read, quote, Best of luck with everything, always. You need to concentrate on your daughter and what's happening to you. To do this, I don't think we should have any contact until things have calmed down for both of our sakes. I know you'll understand. Everyone is looking for a story. This is not an easy decision for me to make. We'll be thinking of you every step of the way. Kiss. End quote. In the bin next to the nightstand were scraps of paper with what appeared to be a list. It read, quote, She will get that wedding dress. She will marry Keith next June. She will send the invites in January. You will never be with her properly. The only way you can be with her is to live here. Think of the positives in the relationship. You will never take her to France. She will never share your bed. You are running out of time. Exclamation mark. Exclamation mark. Exclamation mark. End quote. Eventually, the guardie made their way up to the attic. Up there, they found luggage hidden beneath old toys. In one bag was a random collection of camera and filming equipment, along with a black bin bag and a few empty food containers. In the black bag were a pair of men's jeans, a black jumper, a pair of boxers and a pair of socks, a dishcloth and some paper kitchen towels. Everything had blood all over it. Despite the initial impression given by Lillis, it looked more and more unlikely that whatever had happened in Rowan Hill that morning had been done by a stranger in the house. When CCTV was combed through, Lillis was seen coming and going from the house in his black Mercedes, and also stopping at the summit newsagents at the top of the hill when he bought his newspaper. Looking closely, Gardie realised that the clothes Lillis was wearing at the time of that purchase weren't those that he'd handed over at Hoth Garda Station on the 15th. In fact, they looked an awful lot more like the clothes they'd found in the attic in their searches. What's more, when the clothes he had handed over were examined, Celine's blood was found. Now, with the story he had told Gardie, that was to be expected, but what was strange was that the blood that they found was on the inside of these clothes and was diluted with water. Information came in and evidence was examined as the week went on and soon Gardie in Clintarf Station got a call from Hoth Haven Beauty Salon with information about Lillis and his relationship with an employee at the spa. The texts on the second phone found in Eamon's bedroom were then quickly determined as being from a 31-year-old woman, Jean Tracy, a massage therapist in the town. Jean Tracy was the youngest of three, born in County Tipperary, 
She had moved to Dublin to work, and after a number of years in marketing, she retrained as a beauty therapist. That was how she came to work in Hoth Haven, and where she met Celine Colley. Celine came in weekly for a massage. Her work was busy and stressful, and a bit of spa therapy once a week was a well-deserved treat for her. She liked the upmarket salon in Hoth. It was right across from the harbour, and though it was always busy around there, once you were inside the building, it truly was a haven, all incense and gentle, calming spa music. So, when her husband began to complain of back pain, she thought nothing of ringing up the salon and making him an appointment. His back would be right in no time if he started to get some regular massages, she said. And so Eamon began seeing Jean Tracy. And at first it really was all about massages. But then they began chatting during the treatments, and soon found that they were both desperately attracted to one another. Their affair began in October of 2008. This was despite the fact that Eamon was married and Jean was engaged. Soon they began meeting when Jean was off work on Mondays, first skulking about in Eamon's car, which had rather helpful tinted windows. They'd also go and park at the Pavilion Shopping Mall in Swords. But soon they found themselves taking walks together and eventually heading into Dublin City to go to pubs or for a meal or for Eamon to buy his mistress expensive gifts in the shops along Grafton Street. When Celine and their daughter were away from the family home in Hoth, Eamon had Jean come over to the house with him. They invested in a pair of cheap phones that they'd used to text and ring each other from. Jean even sent a few risque photos to Eamon, and the two were in contact pretty much every day. After her workmate came forward, Gardy called to speak to Jean Tracy, and she confirmed to them that she'd been seeing Eamon Lillis in secret for about ten weeks. She was fully cooperative with them and answered all of their questions regarding the affair, from how it had started to where the two went together and the things he had bought her. Between the revelations of the secret relationship and physical evidence that simply didn't add up with a murder occurring in the midst of a botched burglary, Gardy now turned their attention to Eamon Lillis. He was staying with Celine's brother Chris, and on the morning of the 20th of December, Gardy called to the house in the early hours of the morning. Eamon was asleep when they knocked at the door. The Gardy who entered the house woke him in order to tell him that he was being arrested in relation to the murder of his wife. They allowed him to dress before bringing him to Clontarf Garda Station to be questioned, now as a suspect rather than as a witness and victim. The Gardaí rang for a criminal solicitor, one a friend had recommended, who advised his new client to tell the Gardaí that he wouldn't be answering questions, and that if they put any to him, to respond simply with no comment. It's fairly standard advice, and usually means that some poor legal assistant at the solicitor's office will have to watch the hours of interview through to make sure the client no-commented throughout. But in Eamon's case, he only partly took the advice of his lawyer. He was shown the footage of him buying his newspaper from the shop, wearing different clothes from what he had handed over to the guardee at Hoth Station the day his wife died. 
In fact, it was put to him that the clothes looked an awful lot like the blood-stained clothes found in the suitcase in the attic. Lillis couldn't help but explain himself. He told his interviewers that he had in fact changed his clothes after he got back from the school run, before he took the dogs for a walk. And he said he'd left those clothes downstairs. Whoever had attacked him had obviously stashed them and the stolen goods in the attic at some point. Lillis even said that he couldn't be sure that there was only one intruder that day. He only saw one person, but there could have been someone else that he didn't see. When confronted with evidence of his affair, Lillis initially denied it, but then said that he had been seeing Jean Tracy. He'd been texting her and ringing her, and they'd met for sex at various places, and he'd bought her things. But despite all that, he insisted that he loved his wife. He said the strange note or list found in the bin in the master bedroom was actually work for a novel he was working on. He said the affair was a midlife crisis of sorts, and that he'd never been jealous of his wife or her success, or over his lover. Questioning continued in Clintarf Garda Station through that day with few breaks. Lillis rang his solicitor for further advice, and he was seen by a doctor when he complained of a headache. But Lillis said he didn't want to break for the night in order for him to sleep. He told Gardy that it was his preference to continue the questioning on into the night, and he continued to deny any involvement in his wife's killing. The next morning, at quarter past seven, Lillis was charged with the murder of Celine Colley. He was brought before the court sitting at Cloverhill Prison to be charged formally and was remanded in custody. He told the court that he had nothing to say when the charges were put to him. From the moment that news had broken that there had been a supposed home invasion and a woman had been killed in an affluent Dublin suburb by the sea, the media were in a frenzy. When it became known that the deceased had worked in the film industry and was highly connected and had been something approaching famous in her early 20s, this frenzy went into overdrive. Photographers set up camp outside Rowan Hill, capturing snaps of the house just visible behind the fencing and lush evergreen privacy bushes and ivy, complete with crime scene tape, marking the area as closed to its usual traffic. The press were really out in force at Celine's funeral, though, which took place in the local church in Hoth on the 23rd of December at noon. The church was packed full, hours before the funeral was even meant to begin. There was a strangeness to the funeral in that, it being just days before Christmas, the church had been made ready for that. As the mass concluded and the coffin was taken from the church to be transported to Glasnevin Cemetery, mourners were confronted again, but this time by the flashes of cameras. The service wasn't just for a woman who had been killed, or a person who was mildly famous, but was also attended by influential people like judges and politicians and connected people in the Irish media. It was an event, really. One of Celine's sisters noted that the funeral lacked, quote, the usual ritual and comfort, end quote. Such was the intrusion of the media at the time. Meanwhile, Lillis sat in prison. He wasn't granted bail until the 30th of December, and even then getting the cash together had been tricky. 
the cash bond had been set at over 75,000 euros. But on the 6th of January, Lillis found himself outside the prison gates and made his way home to Rowan Hill. The place had been cleaned up. The evidence of a violent death was no longer apparent to the naked eye. Lillis tried to continue on as normal, but he really missed Jean. So he tried to contact her and left her notes and messages at her new workplace. He even sent her a gift of a Tiffany diamond pendant. In response, Jean Tracy went to the guardie. Lillis found himself in court once more at a brief hearing where the judge scolded him for contacting a person who was likely to be called to give evidence against him for the state. Lillis said that he would cease and desist. Media again had a field day with the appearance, but were restrained in their reporting to keep on the right side of contempt laws. But after this, all news on Lillis fizzled away. There were no new facts to report, and so the sensationalised murder dropped off their radar. In April of 2009, Lillis decided to wind down his deceased wife's company, Toytown Productions. The business had slowed since her death, as a result of her murder and the publicity that followed and in truth, she had been the driving force and the main asset of the business, and so Lillis quietly ceased its operations while he was out on bail. But attention swung back around quickly and with force when Eamon Lillis appeared in court for his trial on the 11th of January 2010. It was the first high-profile murder trial to take place in the new Criminal Courts of Justice building, which is a huge cylindrical building sitting just outside the gates of the Phoenix Park, on the outskirts of Dublin city centre. Inside, it's all shiny pale and black stone, steel and glass, and looks like something out of a movie about a dystopian future. But there's a stark beauty to the place. The first day of the trial was taken up in its entirety by jury selection. In the end, six men and six women were chosen and sworn in. Unusually, it was noted by the press that Lillis himself seemed to express his opinion on the suitability of potential jurors. He would give a shake of his head to his counsel when he thought that a juror should be dismissed. Journalists also noted that most of those headshakes were for women or people who didn't quite look middle class. And he was going off appearances only. The information supplied to the legal teams in jury selection is simply the names and occupations of those who have turned up when called. The next day, the legal teams, press and public convened in the CCJ before Mr. Justice Barry White. Mary Ellen Ring took the position of senior counsel for the state and began the case by outlining the evidence Gardy had collected that implicated the accused. After describing the scene and the finding of the suitcase in the attic, she then went through each and every lie she alleged Mr. Lillis had told in the wake of his wife's death. Then she told them of the relationship that Eamon had had with Jean Tracy. When she was done, Brendan Grehan, senior counsel for the defence, took to his feet. 
the court sat in stunned silence as he informed Mr. Justice White that his client now admitted that there was no burglar in the house that morning, that there had been no one else present besides himself and Celine the morning she had suffered the injuries which resulted in her death. The usual evidence given by Gardy about the locations involved was given, but this time use was made of the up-to-date technology available in the new courtrooms of the CCJ. Pictures were handed to the jurors to look at, as well as being projected onto multiple screens in the room, and a video of the interior of Rowan Hill as well as the gardens and deck area was shown. The footage had been captured by Gardy the day Lillis was arrested, and showed the preserved crime scene before it had been cleaned. Without the jury present, Justice White gave out to the prosecution for presenting the video evidence, saying that a lot of what had been shown was wholly irrelevant to the proceedings. There had been no need, for instance, to see Celine's bedroom, or the bedroom of her teenage daughter. It was voyeuristic, he said, and sensationalistic. He compared it to the public spectacle, of the O.J. Simpson trial in the U.S. The call Eamon Lillis made to 999 was played for the court to hear, and paramedics from the ambulance service and Gardy who responded to the scene described the events as they unfolded that morning. In the second week of the trial, key witnesses took to the stand. Those who had been attending the trial noticed that on the morning of that Wednesday, the 20th, there was a larger-than-usual Garda presence in the courtroom when the doors were opened. There was a tight knot of them standing at the back of the court, surrounding the area that witnesses usually sat in. The reason for this became clear when they glimpsed a pretty brunette sitting on a wooden bench within the scrum. It was Jean Tracy, and she would be giving evidence that day. It seems that special arrangements had been made to help her avoid the press attention. The state had not released the date on which she was expected to give evidence, and she had been ushered into the courtroom using the private corridors and underground car park usually reserved for court employees and the prison service. She took the stand after a neighbour of Lillis's, whose main contribution to the case was having heard a scream coming from somewhere nearby her house the morning of Celine's death. Tracy outlined her background for Ms. Ring. Then she described meeting Celine Colley and Eamon Lillis and the beginnings of their affair. The state's questioning was delicate, not looking for too much detail about the relationship beyond that it was intimate and sexual in nature. She told the court that she'd texted Lillis a number of times the morning of Celine's death, but after details had emerged of what had happened, had begun distancing herself from him. Soon the affair was no longer secret and she'd taken leave from her job, which would eventually cease altogether. Tracy told the court that she hadn't spoken to Lillis during that week at all. In fact, they'd had no contact until he was released from prison on the 6th of January 2009. He'd driven by her house and had left her some voicemails, but she'd ignored them. She had maintained her distance from him and hadn't heard from him again until the following March. That time, they spoke. She said Lilith said he wanted to explain to her what had happened. 
He had described to her an argument between the couple, stemming from the fact that Lillis had forgotten to take out the rubbish. They'd yelled at each other, he told Tracy, and said awful things to one another. And then Celine had attacked. They'd struggled and slipped on the decking outside, and then Celine had hit him and bit his finger. He'd pushed her to get him off him, and he thought that it was at that point that her head struck a brick, and she began to bleed heavily. Lillis had then told her that, as his wife lay bleeding on the deck, falling in and out of consciousness, the two of them had concocted a plan to tell authorities that there had been a burglar and that they'd been attacked in order to protect their daughter from the knowledge that her parents had a violent row. Lillis told her he rang for an ambulance when he was unable to rouse his wife, still lying on the deck. Jean Tracy commented that this story, that this was a cover-up for the sake of their daughter, didn't make much sense to her. Lillis continued to ring Tracy and she ignored his calls. The last contact she had with him was when, on the 26th of May, she went to work and found that he'd left her a three-page letter along with a gift. The box was wrapped in paper with the lyrics from Beyonce's Halo printed on it, and inside was a Tiffany diamond pendant. At that point, she had gone to the Gardee. She had tried to ignore him and his attentions, but this was one step too far. Tracy told them about Lillis contacting her, the calls and the gifts, and that he'd made a confession of sorts to her. Mr. Grehan was quite pointed in his cross-examination. He asked Tracy why, when she had heard that Celine Colley had been killed, had she herself not come forward to the Gardee? It was one of her work colleagues who had reported the affair, not her. She dismissed the observation as unimportant. She admitted that she was the one who had asked for a meeting in March of 2009 after having a few drinks, but she said that she'd wanted closure on their relationship, not that she'd wanted details of what had happened. Grehan asked her why it was that it had taken her two months to go to the Gardee after Lillis's shocking confession, and Jean said that Lillis had been following her. She thought ignoring him would put an end to things, but when it was clear that that wasn't going to work, she'd gone to the police and told them everything. She was also questioned about what she knew of Lillis and Celine's relationship. Tracy told the court that she'd once overheard a conversation between Lillis and Collie when the two were together in his car. Celine had rang her husband and, according to Tracy, ordered him home so that she could take the car out. Tracy recalled that Eamon didn't seem perturbed by her tone, though he was a little embarrassed. It seemed to her that Lillis was used to being bossed about and spoken to harshly by his wife. The next day, the screens in the courtroom would flick on again, but this time in order that Lillis and Celine's now 17-year-old daughter could give evidence. As a minor, she was allowed to answer questions via video link, and so she sat elsewhere in the building, looking at a screen and a camera, which would show her only the faces of the lawyers asking questions. It spared her speaking in front of the tightly packed courtroom. Ms. Ring asked her questions first, and avoided entirely asking anything about the morning her mother had died. Instead, she had the girl confirm that she had spent that Christmas away in Austria while her father was in custody. When she returned home and saw her father, she told the court he'd explained to her what had happened 
It was very similar to what Jean Tracy had recounted the day before. He said that the couple had fought, her mum had been hurt, and her father had told the burglary story to try and protect her. But, she told Miss Ring, she didn't appreciate the lie. The lie was what she couldn't forgive. Mr. Grehan had little to add, barring the fact that the girl recalled her father saying that he'd been panicked. Her evidence was over, and then the screens flicked off. Next up was Dr. Michael Curtis, assistant state pathologist. He had attended the scene and had performed the post-mortem on Celine Colley's body the day she died. He said that his initial observations were that the deceased was a middle-aged woman, about 5'10 in height and, quote, markedly obese, end quote. He observed a ring around the iris of her eye indicating that she suffered from high cholesterol and there were pinpricks of red in the whites of her eye indicating that lack of oxygen could have been a factor in her death. She had scrapes and bruises on her face, arms, shoulder, back and thighs. The most serious of her injuries were on her head. One near the front on the left side above her ear another on the right near the top of her head and a third on the back of her head to the right of the base of her skull. The pathologist's conclusion was that Celine's death had been caused by a number of factors, blunt force trauma to the head, postural asphyxia and hypertonic cardiomyopathy. Basically, the head wounds had caused her to lose a lot of blood, meaning her heart wasn't getting enough oxygen. That, combined with the fact that she would have had great difficulty breathing once unconscious due to her weight, led to her death. Dr. Curtis dismissed the idea that Celine had fallen or slipped accidentally once or twice and that this had caused her wounds. He had even gone to visit the scene to look closely at the decking area to see if the wooden planks could account for some or all of the injuries to Miss Colley's face. He concluded that Celine had been first struck from the front, had fallen, and that she'd been struck a further two times while lying on the decking. Curtis went on to say that, given the nature of these wounds, that there was no fracture of the skull or bleeding on the brain, the injuries weren't necessarily fatal. Perhaps if Celine had gotten medical help quickly, her life could have been saved. Brendan Grehan began his cross-examination by questioning why Dr. Curtis had concluded that the head wounds had happened in that particular sequence, and whether it was at all possible that the injuries had been caused by a series of falls. During the questioning, Lillis passed a note to his legal team. Grehan then asked why Dr. Curtis thought that the first wound had been on the front of the head. Curtis responded that it was because she'd been found face down, and so logic would dictate that it was a wound inflicted before she was face down. Green asked him how did he know that Celine had been found face down, and the pathologist responded that a guard had given him this information, and the scraping injuries to Ms. Colley's face made him think that this information was correct. Grehan then moved on to push Curtis, who was getting noticeably exacerbated by the questioning, into agreeing that it was not impossible to say that things hadn't happened the way Lillis had purportedly told his daughter and mistress. Dr. Curtis briefly returned to the stand the next morning, after the lawyers had tried to verify what he had said about being told Ms. Colley had been found lying on her front. 
No Garda came forward to say that they'd given this information and the only evidence presented at that point in the trial was that Celine was found lying on her side. The pathologist was questioned as to whether this would change his interpretation of the sequence of events and he agreed, yes, that if she'd been found on her side, he would be less certain that the wound to the front of the head was inflicted first. He noted, however, that the position she lay in would have had no bearing on the difficulty she would have had in breathing afterwards. After this, the state rested. Brendan Grehan announced that the defence would be putting on a case of their own, which of course they didn't have to, but it appeared as if Eamon Lillis wanted to tell his side of the story and try to prove that he hadn't in fact killed his wife. The first witness on the stand was actually a news photographer. He'd been at the courts when Lillis appeared, but of interest while on the stand were pictures he'd taken of Rowan Hill. He'd gotten some good shots of the back of the house, including part of the decking area. The purpose of this testimony was to show that, although the homes along Wingate Road are very private, it was in fact possible to see the decking area at Rowan Hill from the road. The defence hoped that it would show that it was unlikely that someone would seriously assault another in a place that was so easily overlooked, let alone murder someone. And after that, the court filled to capacity as Eamon Lillis himself sat in the witness box to finally give his version of events that morning. He ran through the morning routine up until the point where he arrived home from walking the dogs. He said Celine had been cleaning the fridge and as he was getting ready to pick up after the dogs in the garden, she gave out to him. He'd forgotten to put out bird feet, like she'd asked days ago. The two began arguing back and forth, yelling and calling names. At one point, when Lillis was in the kitchen, he looked out to the deck to see that Celine had a brick in her hand and seemed to have slipped on the slick deck, given the cold, damp conditions that morning. Things got even more heated at that point when Eamon realised that his wife was effectively coming at him with a brick. They tussled out on the deck and he pushed her into the frame of the kitchen window. She cried out in pain or anger, he wasn't sure which. And they continued struggling backwards and as they moved back onto the deck, Eamon now lost his footing and the two of them fell onto the ground once more. They were arguing and Celine was hurt and he was shaking. They'd never fought like this before, he said. He'd been scratched across the face and one of his fingernails had been torn. Celine had banged her head. In the midst of their continued bickering, Eamon told the court that they'd decided to tell people that there'd been a burglary. Neither of them wanted to admit that they'd had a fight, that it ended up physical. So Eamon left Celine sitting on the deck. She hadn't stood up, but she was sitting up on the edge of the deck when he went back inside. He went upstairs and washed his hands off and began staging the break-in when he realised his clothes were covered in blood. So he changed and then threw everything into the suitcase and up into the open attic. When he was done and he figured that they'd had enough time to cool off somewhat, he headed back downstairs and into the kitchen. It was then he saw Celine lying prone on the deck and realised that something was wrong. He told the court he'd been gone about 15 minutes. When Ms Ring took over, 
she brought Eamon through each and every lie he had told, beginning that day when he called 999 or spoke to the paramedics and guardee, gave his statement, or went to stay with family. He said he hadn't realised how seriously Celine had been hurt and decided to stick to the story that they'd come up with together. And once he'd said it, he found it impossible to get out of the lie. Even after Celine's death, he just didn't know how to come clean to her family and the authorities that they'd had a fight and that's how she'd died. Eamon insisted that he hadn't been lying to his wife for weeks previously, given the affair. She hadn't known about it, and no, he hadn't told her, but he hadn't actively lied to her at any point. Ms. Ring witheringly told him, quote, You are a 52-year-old man. Your child, a 17-year-old, knows not to lie, end quote. Then he was asked how it was that he hadn't realised how badly Celine had been injured. Lillis said that he'd seen no blood and that Celine was upright and talking when he left her. And yet, as Ring pointed out, Lillis had washed blood from his hands and changed his clothing, which were covered in blood, and there'd been a pool of blood around Celine's head when she'd been found. Lillis insisted that he hadn't noticed the blood and hadn't thought at the time that her injuries were serious. The two of them were more concerned with preserving appearances at that point than seeking medical assistance. It had been a row that got out of hand, and a tragic accident. Ms. Ring put it to him that his wife had been badly injured and was bleeding on the deck, and as Lillis had been cleaning himself up and staging a burglary, Celine had been dying. He'd left her there, from the beginning of the fight, just after half nine, until he rang emergency services, at 10.04. The cross-examination of Lillis was halted then, for the weekend, and when it resumed on Monday morning, Ms. Ring went over again why it was that he had left his wife lying on the deck, bleeding, why he had left her there to die. Lillis was insistent that he didn't think she was seriously hurt. He hadn't called emergency services because neither of them thought that it would come to that. He was giving himself time to cool off. He was becoming irritated with these very specific and somewhat repetitive questions that queried his judgment and his story. Ms. Ring asked him again why he had persisted in his lies to the police and his family, even after evidence mounted showing that there had never been a burglary or an attack on him and his wife and he continued to say that he had felt trapped in the situation. Ms. Ring suggested that he felt trapped in that story because his wife's death had meant that there was an opportunity for him to develop a relationship with Ms. Tracy. Lillis said outright and with conviction that that relationship was never a possibility. It would never have happened. She also questioned him about the strange note that had been found in the master bedroom. Lillis was insistent on this point, that although the note did bear some similarity to his circumstances at the time, it was actually just some thoughts about a possible storyline he had jotted down for a script involving a bank robbery. Yes, he said the ideas that he had 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 been somewhat taken from his experiences at the time, but it was the beginnings of a story, nothing more. Before she finished, Ring put it directly to Lillis, 
that the three injuries to Celine's head had in fact been caused by the brick found on the deck which had blood and hair on it, that he had hit his wife in the head with it three times, and then left her lying on the deck to die, while concocting a cover-up for his crime. Lillis responded simply, quote, That's not true, end quote. That was the end of the defense's case, and the court reconvened the next morning for closing speeches. Mary Ring took her turn first and told the jury that they were the ones to determine the facts of the case, to decide what was the truth. She told them that Lillis had murdered his wife. That morning they'd had an argument, and he'd seen an opportunity and taken it, striking his wife three times on the head with a brick. To find murder, there needed to be intent, but intent could be fleeting, and further, a person was presumed to have intended the natural and probable consequences of his actions. What else could Eamon Lillis have thought when he hit his wife over the head with a brick, but that he was causing death or serious harm? Not only that, but there was no evidence presented that Lillis had been in a panic that morning while his wife lay dying. They'd fought, he'd struck her, and then he'd gone inside and washed and changed, and set the stage for his fake burglary. He hadn't been acting irrationally out of panic that morning. It was murder. Brendan Grehan asked the jury to acquit his client. He said the state had not proven their case. Furthermore, he said that there was no evidence presented that would disprove his client's version of events. Lillis hadn't beaten his wife to death, they'd had an argument, they'd fought, she'd been injured, and her underlying health had been a contributing factor in her death. It was a tragic accident. But if they didn't accept that, Green argued Celine's death couldn't be considered anything above manslaughter. Maybe it was manslaughter because of negligence, maybe because of provocation in the midst of an argument. Or maybe it was manslaughter through excessive force in a moment of self-defence. But he said murder certainly hadn't been proved here. What's more, they couldn't judge Lillis for his moral failures. The fact that he had had an affair was morally wrong, of course, but they were there to judge the facts and the evidence at hand. And with that, Brendan Grehan sat down. All that was left was for Mr. Justice Barry White to give his summary and instructions. Mr. Justice Barry White went through the evidence that they had heard. The only direct evidence had been the 999 call and Lillis's own testimony. The judge told the jury that it was up to them to decide what inferences they might draw from the various lies that Lillis had told in the wake of Celine's killing. He went through the evidence of Dr. Curtis and the injuries Ms. Colley had sustained. That complete, he moved on to his instructions. If the jury believed Lillis, then they must acquit. If they didn't, they had to look at the evidence and decide what had actually happened. If they came to the same conclusion as the prosecution, then they could find the defendant guilty of murder. If not, there was an option to find him guilty of manslaughter, due to lack of evidence of the necessary intent, or due to one of the various defences that had been mentioned by Mr. Grehan, self-defence, provocation, or negligence. 
He reminded the jury, however, that Lillis and his legal team had not put forth any of these defences to the charges laid against him. With that, the jury were led out for lunch, and when the court reconvened, the two senior counsel were on their feet to lodge requisitions. Ms. Ring said that the judge had forgotten to tell the jury that they were to be unanimous in their verdict, and if they decided to convict for manslaughter, they were to inform the court about which option they had decided upon. Then, Mr. Grehan rose, and in the strongest possible terms, said that the summary of the evidence had been biased against his client's case. He said that Justice White had dissected the evidence presented by aid of the trial transcript, where he was the only person with access to that, and totally undermined the defence's case. He said further that the jury seemed to him to have been left with the impression that Lillis's lies were somehow an indication of his guilt, and that by stating Lillis had not availed of any of the various defences, such as provocation or self-defence, it may have left the jury with the impression that they therefore couldn't decide on one of these options for their verdict. He asked for the jury to be discharged. Ms. Ring obviously strongly disagreed, saying that she respected the intelligence of the jurors to realise that every single aspect of the evidence could not be gone through, and that they should be allowed to continue to consider their verdict. Mr. Justice White was also having none of it. He refused to discharge the jury and recalled them to address their options regarding a finding of manslaughter, and to ensure that they were clear that a verdict at that time was to be unanimous. The court resumed again quickly after this, though, as the jury had returned with a question. They wanted access to some of the evidence, the 999 call, Lillis's testimony, and the clothing and the black bag that were found in the attic. They would all be made available for the jury. The original statements given by Lillis, his daughter, and Jean Tracy had, however, never been admitted as evidence and therefore could not be made available for the jury. They were sent home for the night while accommodations were made for the evidence that they had requested. The next morning, they listened to the audio recording of Lillis's evidence on the stand and retired with the other pieces of evidence that they had requested and were granted. The jury deliberated until late that afternoon when they requested a cigarette break. The judge called them in and said that he was ready to send them home for the night, but the jury foreperson said that they'd prefer to keep going. They were finally sent home at half past five. Before the third day of deliberations commenced, Justice White informed the six men and six women that he would now accept a majority verdict of ten to two, as their deliberations now totaled four and a half hours. They asked the judge to go over the definitions of murder and manslaughter and the various defences once more and finally returned with a verdict at 6pm after more than nine hours of deliberation. They had found Mr. Lillis guilty of manslaughter, as murder had not been proven. Sentencing was set to take place in six days' time in order that the Collie family might prepare a victim impact statement. Lillis was allowed out on bail in order to put his affairs in order, but would be required to present himself twice daily to Hoth Garda Station to sign on. He left the CCJ building amid a swarm of photographers and press looking for quotes, and bundled into a black car waiting for him on the curb at the bottom of the court steps, 
His daughter was in the car waiting for him. Lillis was hounded by the press in that week. Photographers followed him to the shops, to events his daughter was attending, and to the Garda station. Ladders were put up against the fence at Rowan Hill to try and get shots of him going about his business in the house in which he'd killed his wife. When everyone gathered back in the criminal courts of justice, the evidence presented at trial was run through again. Ms. Ring read aloud a victim impact statement from Celine's sister and handed up another written one from Celine's daughter, which would not be made public. She noted that Lillis had attempted to frustrate the investigation. He'd made no admission of guilt and had shown no remorse. He'd yet to even apologise to the Cawley family or his daughter for his actions that day. The state therefore asked for the sentence to be at the higher end of the scale for manslaughter. Mr. Grehan started off with saying his client apologised for the hurt that he had caused to his family. He said that this was a mild-mannered 52-year-old man who had never been in trouble in any way before. The case had garnered so much media attention that Lillis would likely be the subject of it for years to come, and would be a social pariah upon release. He argued that the verdict of the jury had effectively been one of involuntary manslaughter, and with that in mind, and given the mitigation presented, Lillis should be given a sentence at the lower end of the scale. Mr. Justice White retired to consider the information before him, and when the court met again the next day, he sentenced Eamon Lillis to 10 years for the manslaughter of Celine Cawley. He further suspended three of those years, given that Lillis would continue to be the subject of media attention after his release. Justice White said that all in all, he thought that Lillis's expression of remorse had been late in coming and self-serving. Lillis was led out of the court by prison guards and brought to Wheatfield Prison. What remained was the question of what was to become of Celine's estate. Her will was written two years after her marriage to Lillis, when their daughter was an infant, and when Toytown Productions was a fledgling company. There was no question with regards to assets that belonged solely to Celine. These went straight to their daughter. But everything else had been jointly owned by Lillis and Collie. Lillis was entitled to half of their shared assets, despite the fact that his inheritance had come about as a direct result of his crimes. The couple did jointly own a property in France which was awarded to the estate due to very clear French laws on the matter, which state that a person cannot inherit where this has arisen as a result of a crime committed by them. But in Ireland, things weren't so straightforward. Arguably, Lillis had owned his half of the assets before Celine's killing, and under our inheritance law, that didn't change, despite his conviction. The Cawley family launched legal action in order to try and secure those assets for Celine and Lillis's daughter, and to ensure that Lillis hadn't become a very rich single man due to his heinous actions. In court, Lillis even argued that his daughter should not inherit the house at all until his own death. He said he did not intend on selling the family home in Hoth, but also did not want to share the property with her or become her tenant. He also argued that he should be allowed to maintain sole ownership of a further rental property that the couple had owned in nearby Sutton, 
in order that he might have an income upon his release. He said that from this, he would be able to support himself and provide for his daughter. What took well under two years in France to make its way through the court to ensure that Lillis didn't benefit was a four-year-long legal battle here in Ireland. In the end, the matter was heard at the High Court in 2012, which ruled that he was in fact entitled to 50% of the couple's Irish assets, including half the value of the house in Hoth where he had beat Celine to death. Ms Justice Mary Lafoy said that the court's hands were tied in the matter and called for legislation to be introduced to cover the inheritance of assets held jointly after an unlawful killing. Toytown had been wound up before his trial began, and Rowan Hill was sold shortly after the ruling for €850,000. Eamon Lillis served out his sentence, and after being granted 25% remission due to good behaviour, was released in April of 2015. Media camped outside Wheatfield Prison, awaiting his final walk out to the gates, but the presence affected Lillis's desire to leave the building. He'd been granted release a day early, but with all the photographers waiting outside, he refused to sign the paperwork presented to him. The next day, he jumped into a taxi and took a circuitous route across the city, ending up in Dublin Airport, in an attempt to ditch the press, who were still waiting for him. He took a flight to Southampton in the UK. But he hadn't tricked the journalists. He found himself accompanied on the plane by reporters looking for comment and a further media escort out of Southampton Airport. After that, he went to his sister's home to lay low. With his profits from the sale of their joint assets, he bought a cottage in Kiltiernan, South County Dublin, with the intention of retiring there. But it soon became clear to Lillis that it was going to be impossible for him to carry on there with the sheer amount of media interest in his movements. After living in the cottage for less than a month, he put it back on the market and moved to the UK in 2017. The cottage sold for a profit. Lillis no longer has any contact with his daughter. The Collies have campaigned to have legal reforms introduced, which would prevent killers from inheriting joint assets, and have also campaigned alongside women's aid to highlight intimate partner violence and femicide. The Women's Aid report of November 2018 found that 225 women have been killed since 1996 an average of 10 a year. 61% of women are killed in their own homes. A private member's bill was submitted to the Dáil late last year by Fianna Fáil Justice spokesperson Jim O'Callaghan to address the issues surrounding the inheritance of joint assets, which was not opposed by the Minister for Justice, though it has been reported that amendments are to be made to the bill before it proceeds. In March of this year, on International Women's Day, Charlie Flanagan said that the so-called Celine's Law was at an advanced stage of development and that he was committed to addressing the public's concerns over these loopholes apparent in the inheritance laws. Celine was noted as being just as generous and thoughtful as she was driven, and her family works today to preserve this memory of her, rather than the one portrayed in the press as the domineering businesswoman with a henpecked husband. 
She was vivacious and ambitious, and a fierce mother and friend. But despite her good nature and the privilege she no doubt benefited from, she fell victim to violence in her own home, with fatal consequences. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or even better, tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. You'll make my day. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Victoria Kapeski, Maria, Tracy Tam, and the good folks over at Beyond Contempt Podcast. Do go check them out. Patrons get exclusive Mens Rea merch and access to up to two bonus monthly episodes, extra stories in the form of A Guilt Trip once a month, and Mens Rea in Brief, a roundup of what's been happening in the courts. So, check it out. You'll also get my undying love and appreciation. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. Sources for today's episode, including our main source, Death on the Hill by Abigail Riley, can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. The court sat. The court sat in sun's. The court sat in stunned silence. This is Mike Morford. You may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast Criminology. I'd like to invite you to listen to my podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I discuss a murder case and include an interview with a family member of the victim to discuss the aftermath of the murder. Some of the cases I cover are well known, and others you probably haven't heard of. And I have several episodes currently available for you to binge on, including episodes about the Delphi murders, the Golden State Killer, and the Colonial Parkway murders, just to name a few. Here's a small sample. Bill Thomas is the brother of Kathy Thomas, and he agreed to talk with me about the murder in his family. Well, Mike, at the risk of sounding like every other proud big brother around the world, Kathy was an amazing person. And one thing I wanted to get across is how important it is that the victims that I'll be talking about in these cases aren't just statistics. You know, they were real people. They're more than just murder victims. For me, knowing that he has a family and that he gets to see his kids every day and that he gets to be there for his kids growing up, like, it's just, it's not fair. He was the most funniest man I've ever met. He was everybody's friend. New episodes come out on Saturdays, and you can find The Murder of My Family wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode.